And I'd like to invite the rest of you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you, that'll be on page 878 of the Bibles uh, there in the rows. And so if you're uh, like me in the workforce, I can suppose that probably uh, one of your favorite days of the month, or perhaps a, a couple of your favorite days of the month are payday, right? So I don't know if you get paid once a month, twice a month, bi-weekly, but whatever that day is, whenever that day comes, I'm sure you're, you're, you're rejoicing and you're very thankful to be able to take that money and to put it to good use in your life. Now, I realize that there are several ways that we go about doing this, right? We, we hopefully, number one, are paying our bills, right? So that's probably the first kind of bucket that you have when paycheck comes in. You've hopefully made your budget. And if you attended our equipping class that John taught for uh, seven or eight weeks, you know that you need a budget going on in your life to, to let your money, you know, not dictate how you live, but you dictate how your money kind of lives type of thing. So, so you pay your bills, right? And then maybe beyond that, you're going to your other needs in life and perhaps your wants, right? Or your, your needs kind of thing. And, and then, you know, it's really wise also to, to, to take a portion of that and save it for a variety of purposes, whether that's an emergency fund, a college fund, you know, for a rainy day, maybe you're saving for a purchase, but it's wise to save. And then it's also wise, if possible, then to take whatever's left over and invest it wisely. Now, I realize that we are a fairly young church here at Redemption Hill, but we are growing to be more and more diverse, which is awesome. But perhaps if you're a little younger, you haven't had time to save up a lot or invest a lot, but you can already buy into these principles of the wisdom of, of saving and investing. I want to give you just a, a couple of, of stats about investments that I think will be really eye-opening for us this morning, okay? So let's just assume that you had been able to accumulate enough wealth in 1970 to invest $10,000 into Procter & Gamble. If you had done that with dividends accruing throughout the history of your investment, you would today own 5,727 shares of Procter & Gamble worth about $363,000. And you would get an annual dividend payment of over $12,000. Not bad, huh? I wish I would have been born before 1970 and had $10,000 to invest. Well, too bad I did and it wasn't. Um, what about something a little closer to home 2013. In 1990, if you would have invested $10,000 in the healthcare giant Abbott Labs, you would have earned today 1,319 shares worth about $68,000 and you would have a paycheck coming in every, every month of 2,500. Now let's even bring it a little closer to home. This is one that probably all of us can identify with a little more readily. If you would have in 2001, opted not to buy the newly released iPod and taken that $399 and invested it in Apple, today that $399 investment would be worth over $26,000. Now, the financial analyst in the house can kind of check my, you know, do, do the, the, the fact checks on my research here. But, but the point there being that when we invest and invest wisely, we can have a great return on the investment. 
Now, I think all of you are probably thinking, yeah, well, this, this is great, Tanner. You know, if we all had hindsight, which is 2020, and we knew how to invest our dollars today, and we knew we were going to get these, you know, 1,000 and 4,000% returns on our investment, and perhaps even more, then we would all take all the money that we could possibly, you know, gather and pour it into these investments, but the problem with the stock market is, is that we can't predict the future, right? We can't see exactly how it's going to work out. And you know, Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, he uses financial terms, he uses terms of investment, wages, um, managing our, 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 our money and managing our lives. And just as we have a problem of not being able to see into the future when it comes to these type of investments, we too have a problem in our lives in that we don't always invest our lives and spend our lives as God would have us to that we might get the maximum return on the investment of our lives. But that's exactly what God wants from us. And so today I want us to think about the economics of the kingdom. Okay, now I'm no economist here. Okay, I know we have some that could really kind of speak on these issues in our church, but I can speak a little bit about the economics of the kingdom. And, and while, you know, our economy is unpredictable, we don't know if our home values and our, our, our retirement funds are going up or down, the good thing about the kingdom of God is that there are some irreversible laws that govern how we make our investments and what the return on those investments will ultimately look like. And so in Luke 19, we're going to look at this, this parable of the 10 minus today. And the, the main encouragement that I have for us today is that we would invest our lives wisely as we live in between the times. The, the, the thrust is to invest our lives wisely as we live in between the times. I want to read this parable in its entirety, verses 11 through 27 for us. So read, read along as I read it for us. Luke writes, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned Having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. 
You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So when we think about what it looks like to invest wisely in the economy of God's kingdom, I think we can pull three truths, three encouragements out of this parable that will help us understand what it looks like to invest wisely to, as the text says, engage in business until Christ returns. Let me give you uh, those three this morning. Number one, engage in business by living under the authority of Christ. Engage in business by living under the authority of Christ. Verse 11 here is the key for understanding the parable. And we have to love when the biblical writers do this and help us really understand what what the message is all about. Because what Luke does is he says, hey, Jesus, while he was hanging out in Jericho and about to move toward Jerusalem, he told them a parable for two different but related reasons. He says first that it was because he was near Jerusalem. We've seen this from the very beginning of the travelogue. At the end of chapter 9 all the way to the end of verse 27, we we end this journey to Jerusalem. And we've seen that Jesus is saying, hey, I am going there to die. I am going there to be a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And oh, by the way, I will rise again on the third day. So his death was imminent. But then number two, it says also, not only because he was near to Jerusalem, but because they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And we've talked about this, the, the, the expectation of the disciples as well as the, the expectation of most Jews was that the Messiah would come and he would set up this political kingdom, restore the fortunes of Israel and kind of set up shop there and rule and everything would be wonderful for the people of Israel. But Jesus says, hey, you're getting ahead of yourself. You need to understand that I'm going to die and I'm not going to immediately set up my kingdom, but I will go and receive a kingdom and then I will come back to watch it unfold. So so this is why then in verse 12, Jesus says that a nobleman, Jesus is the nobleman going to receive the kingdom. It says that he went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And in this, we have a picture of Christ's death, right? He is about to depart. He was about to go away. Number two, we have a, a picture of the reign of Christ. So Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now in this moment, and he is ruling from heaven authoritative over all things. Theologians call this the session of Christ. After his ascension, now he rules at the right hand of God, and this is the session of Christ until one day he will return and establish his eternal kingdom and bring in the new heavens and the new earth. 
So, so then what we find then, the key instruction in the parable is verse 13, where Jesus says, engage in business until I come. So what Jesus is doing here is, is teaching the disciples, hey, there are going to be two times that you need to be very concerned about, okay? Number one is the time of my death, resurrection, and ascension when I will leave you and depart from you. But then there is going to be another time when I come back and return. So you have these two times. Christ came the first time, he leaves, and then he is going to come back. And what this parable is about is how we live in between these two times. And Jesus gives a very simple instruction for us. He says, engage in business until I come. This is his command. This is what he expects from those who follow him. And I love this because what is, the, what is just even these three words, engage in business? It teaches us that the Christian life is one of activity, right? So, so the Christian life isn't just about kind of showing up on Sunday, taking your seat, chilling out, trying to keep a, a few commands, which, oh, by the way, are typically what we should abstain from as Christians, you know, holier than thou, goody two-shoes kind of people, which is the world's perception of Christians oftentimes, right? So we're known for more of what we abstain from than actually what we engage in. But Jesus says, to, to follow me is a path. It's a life. It's an it's a active life that you are not just to simply abstain from a few things, which we are, but you are to engage in a host of good endeavors so that we can live our lives for the glory of God. So the Christian life is one of activity, and this is what Jesus is getting at when he says engage in business. Now, what else does he mean here when he says engage in business? Well, the thrust of this imperative or command is that we would turn a profit with what he entrusts to us, okay? So we are to, to, to gain something with our lives. The, the way that we spend our lives, the way that we conduct business, God wants us to make a return on what he's entrusted to us with our lives. And you say, well, Tanner, then, then what is the business that, that Jesus wants us to attend to? Well, just to kind of simplify it, to make this very simple for us this morning, the business of Jesus, the business of the kingdom of God is to do whatever it is that he has told us to do. Is, is that good enough for you? Is that okay? So, so when Jesus is giving his mission at the very end, he says, go make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and along with you always, even to the ends of the age. He says, teach them to obey everything. So, so God wants us to, in all things, in all ways, at all times, in our thoughts, in our actions, in our motives, he wants us to give full attention to his expectation, his standard for our lives. You see, God is king. Christ is king. What he says goes. We live our lives under his authority. And then what we find out along the way, though, and this is so good, is that whatever he says, whatever he commands for us is actually not a burden, 
but it is liberating. And the Bible even is so kind to us to let us know this. 1 John 5, it says that the commands of God are not burdensome, but they are actually life-giving and they are freedom. So I would just say, hey, if you haven't experienced this, just put it to the test, obey God, and see if it's not a good thing in your life. Obey God and see if there's not a blessing there. And conversely, we know that, man, when we rebel against God, when we, when we sin against God, there is a disconnect there in our fellowship with him, and it weighs us down. The burden comes when we fail to live under the authority of Christ. But now what's the deal? What's, what's the problem? Jesus is telling them this parable, and he's saying, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And, and oh, by the way, not everyone wants to live under my supremacy and my reign. That's why verse 14 says that uh, those citizens of the kingdom said, we don't want this man to reign over us. And, and, and the disciples are going to see this in living color when it comes to the crucifixion of Christ because there's going to be a crowd there shouting as we're about to see in the Gospel of Luke, hey, crucify him, crucify him. And we're going to see that and we're going to think, man, those awful people until we're confronted with the fact that if we had been in Jerusalem on that day, the likelihood of us being in amongst that crowd shouting crucify him is very, very high. You see, the Bible says that apart from God's grace, none of us are friends with God. In fact, we have enmity against God. We hate God. We don't want to live under his righteous rule and standard. Right? And, and spiritually speaking, we understand this because even in day-to-day -day life, do you enjoy people telling you what to do? I mean, it's like, did anyone enjoy that? Hey, like, I can't wait for someone to boss me around and tell me what to do today. It's just not not how it works, right? We, we don't like being told what to do. In fact, we like telling other people what to do. And because we're so smart, we're so skilled, we can do everything ourselves. We're self-sufficient. We can get the job done. And this is, translates to how we relate to God. God, you might be good, but don't tell me what to do because I've got this under control. I'm going to do my own thing. And what lies behind all of this is the sin behind most every sin. It's the sin of pride. Listen to how C.J. Mahaney defines pride. He says that pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence on him. In the words of Charles Bridges, pride is lifting up our hearts against God and contending for supremacy. Now, I know we don't think about it often in this kind of graphic visual terms when we say, oh, I just deviated from God's will. Everything will be cool. It's okay. I'm not really such a rebel when in reality, when we fail to live out God's commands, we are contending for supremacy against God. God, you don't need to call the shots in my life. I've got this one under control. So when we fail to pursue sexual purity, when we fail to, 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 to invest our resources for the kingdom and just spend everything on ourselves, 
when we spend our days in worry and in anxiety, not trusting in God and his plan for our lives, then in every single instance, to one degree or another, we are contending for supremacy against God. This is the essence of pride. This says, God, you are not as wise as you say you are, and I can take this matter into my own hands. And when we do that, by the way, then what happens? We can receive the glory for it, right? We're so good, we had this all figured out, so now we can, people can praise us for how we've lived our lives. So this is why the Bible, again and again and again, says that we need to have humility, Humility allows us to submit to the authority of Christ, right? Humility says, God, you know best. God, you are on the throne, not only of this universe, but also of my life. And so when I'm tempted to get on the throne of my life, I want to remove myself so that you can reign in my life and you can call the shots because you actually know what's best, not me. So let me ask you, what area of your life, what, what practice, what thought pattern are you unwilling to submit to God in these moments, in these days? Is there anything, any area where you're resisting the commands of God? See, to submit to Christ and the authority of Christ, to, to just be simple and helpful here, to submit to Christ is su to submit to his word. God has revealed himself to us in the pages of this book, and so whatever God has told us to do in the pages of scripture, we can receive that, and we can walk in accordance with it, and we can find the blessing that comes from engaging in that kind of business for God. So the first encouragement is for us as we're filled with humility to gladly serve the king by living under his authoritative reign in our lives. Number two, engage in business by exercising faithful stewardship over what God entrusts to you. Look at verse 13 again. It says, engage in business until I come. And, and he told this to 10 different servants and gave them 10 minas. So, so what's going on here is that each servant receives one mina. A mina was worth about three to four months wages uh, during this day. And so as you're probably getting a sense of a mina represents the gifts, the skills, the opportunities and responsibilities that God places into our hands and entrusts to us. You see, we've all been given gifts, skills, opportunities, and responsibilities by God that he says, hey, here you go, invest your life well. And again, the goal is that we would make some kind of return on what he entrusts to us. Just look in verse 15, it says that when he returned, what does it say? He ordered the servants to come back so that he might know what they had gained by doing business. This is a picture of the moment when we will all stand before God, okay? So this day is coming. The Bible says we will all stand before God. We will give an account for our lives and he is going to ask us a very simple question. Hey, how did you spend your life? 
What did you gain with what I entrusted to you? Was there a return on the investment that I made in your life? And so it's a really healthy uh, thing, practice to, to ask ourselves, hey, how will I answer that question? Or maybe more importantly, how will my, what will my life reflect and give me the grounds to be able to answer that question? For the first two servants in the passage, they invested really, really wisely. Verse 16, it says that the mine, the first servant, he took the one mine and made 10 minas more. That's a 1,000% return on the investment. The second servant also did very, very well. He took the one mina, made five minas more, and that's a 500% return on the investment. And so I hope that as we're even reading this parable, you're thinking, man, when it comes to, to meet God, to stand face to face before God, I want to present to him a great return with my life. And we know that this happens when we receive Christ as our Savior, walk and live for him, and spend our lives really well for his sake. And you say, well, Tanner, then this sounds like pride, right? I mean, like if, if we're working to, you know, spend our lives so that we can give this return back to God, then, then, then would we have something to do with that? Like, well, you know, should, should that make us inflated with pride? And the answer, of course, would be no. Why? Because as we saw in Luke 17, verse 10, a, a verse that we memorized a few weeks ago, when we have done all we're commanded to do, we simply say to God, hey, we are only unworthy servants. We have just done what is our duty. And, and added to that, we have done it in the strength that God supplies us each day. So we are who we are. We do what we do because God's grace is infusing our lives every single moment to be able to live our lives for him. So it's grace at the beginning and all the way through the Christian life to the very end. That's the gospel that we preach every single week at Redemption Hill. And so I want you to think about the life that God has entrusted to you. How are you investing in what God has given to you? Let me, let me just name a few categories to help you think about this. What about your family? Your relationships with your family, are you stewarding those relationships well? Are you treating your family with love? Are you pointing your family to Christ? We could ask the same questions about our friendships. Are we pointing our friends to Christ? Are we seeking to serve them, love them, pray for them, bear their burdens? What about your job, that, that job that's bringing in that paycheck that we talked about? Like, do you just show up to show up and get your money? Or are you using your skills and gifts to, to further the, the best interest of the company and to glorify God in your work by working hard and doing things according to the game plan? We could talk about education. We could talk about uh, the, the stage in life you're in, whether you're married or whether you're single, whether you're parents. We could talk about where God has placed us in our neighborhoods. And one that I'd really like for us to think about for a few moments that we see in this passage is the, the stewardship of time itself. So we said that we live in between these two times from when Christ departed to the time that he is going to return. And we all have only so much time in our lives, but every single day we all have the same amount of time. 
So the question is, how are we going to spend our time each and every day? We read Ephesians 5, 15 and 16 earlier. Paul writes, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And if we were just to kind of ruthlessly evaluate our calendar, okay, I think we could all, if we're being honest, we could all say, you know what, there are some time wasters in my life that I can reduce, manage a little better, and weed them out of my life, okay? I'm not saying we don't need leisure, time, and rest as Christians. The Bible is clear about that. We need rest. We need some leisure. But most of us probably take far too much, and we waste just time in our lives, whether that's with technology, whether that's with mindless activities, you kind of can fill in the blank there. But, but, but let's not think only about time wasters. Let's also think about the good things that we do that may not be what is best. So there are some good things that all of us do in our lives when if we kind of step back and evaluate it from God's perspective, you would say, you know what? Man, I could spend a little less time on that good thing so that I could spend more time on what is best. And to to do this, we need to grasp the preciousness of time. Jonathan Edwards wrote a treatise in 1734 uh, on the preciousness of time. And he said this in that writing. He said, time is so short And the work which we have to do is so great that we have none of it to spare. So so time is short, right? Life flies by. The older we get, the more we realize that time is precious. It's short. And and, and the work that we have to do for God is, is so great. It's so valuable. It's so purposeful that we should spend each and every moment of our day seeking to maximize it for God. Now, our problem is is that we are very frivolous with time, sometimes more frivolous with time than we are with our money, and Edwards goes on to argue that time is actually more valuable and precious than money. And he uses this great picture. He says, do you ever see in Medford, Somerville, Cambridge, Boston, do you ever see people just walking down the street, emptying out their wallet, saying, you know what? Hey, here's $20. I'm just going to throw that on the sidewalk. Here's a five. Here's a Benjamin. You know, I'm just going to kind of throw my money around and waste it. Does anyone do that? Then why do we do that with our time? Edward says time is a thousand times more precious than money, and when it is gone, cannot be purchased for money, cannot be redeemed by silver or gold. So would you this week evaluate where it is that you waste time, and would you make the decision with God's help to begin to maximize that time for his glory, investing in the things of God. Let me give you another area where you can invest wisely, and that would be the mission of God. Now, I know you're saying, Tanner, you're just on a missions kick. Like, didn't we get enough of mission last week with Zacchaeus and Jesus? Because Zacchaeus climbed in a tree. God saved him. Jesus said, hey, this is why I was sent for this purpose, to seek and to save the lost. You say, Tanner, you're just on a missions kick. Well, I may be on a missions kick, but I'm not just on a missions kick because this passage is related to the one before it, right? Just go back and look at verse 11. It says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable about him leaving to go to the Father. Now, 
how does this relate and connect? Well, he tells them to engage in business. And you say, well, what is the business of Jesus? All we have to do is go back to the verse before the, the one that starts this parable, and we see the business of Jesus is to come and seek to save the lost. So if that's what he made his life about, if he gave his life so that others might have life in him, then it's not too difficult. We don't have to be rocket scientists to figure out this is what we should give our lives to as well. Right? So will we do it? Many of you probably saw in the, the newsletter we sent out last Wednesday that we put a link in there to eight brief articles on over 120 ways to be missional this summer, okay? When we talk about being missional, we're talking about living our life on mission with God and seeking to display and declare the gospel with our lives, okay? So this, this news about Jesus saving us is too important not to share. So we, in very natural ways, okay, we're not trying to hit people head you know, over the head with the Bible, but at the same time, we're, we want to be active and bold in sharing our faith with others that they might experience this life that we have in Christ. So, so how do we go about that? Well, there, there were a lot of practical suggestions. We'll put that in the newsletter again this week, but let me just give a few that I think will maybe get our feet wet in seeking to be missional to those around us, okay? Here are some just simple, easy ways to be missional. Number one, host a neighborhood work a cookout. Okay, invite your neighbors over, have them over for some hot dogs and hamburgers, and just get to know your neighbors, you know? How many of your neighbors do you not have a clue what their name is, right? I mean, there's probably a, a pretty decent, you know, percentage that, that, that is kind of, you know, a shame, especially for Christians who are to love and serve their neighbors, and that also includes the neighbors that live in the homes next to us, okay? So, so Host a cookout, invite your neighbors over. Number two, be a regular, okay? What we mean by that is just frequent the same uh, shops, the same restaurants, the same gas station, the same grocery, and get to know people. Become on a first-name basis. Display kindness to them and look for opportunities to share who you are and what you're about. Number three, participate in city events. So we'll have some opportunities going on this summer where we as a church can get involved in our city and participate and serve our community. Number four, serve your neighbors, okay? This might be cutting the grass. This might be serving them in some other practical way, but look for ways to serve those around you. Number five, be the first to welcome new people, whether this is in your neighborhood, whether this is in the workplace. Be the first to go to them and extend kindness to them. Number six, share meals with others. So, so don't eat alone. When you go on your lunch break, when you have a, a meal with your family, I mean, it's, it's just not that difficult to make a little extra and invite people over so that you can practice hospitality and you can build friendships with people with the hope of showing them Jesus with your life and sharing Jesus with your mouth. See, we at Redemption Hill don't try to inundate our calendar with a lot of events going on throughout the month. We just want to do worship really well on Sundays, do community groups really well through the week, and say, hey, go be missional with your life. And here's the great thing about it. You don't have to add this as another item to your task list. You just make what you're doing missional, right? So we all got to go to the grocery. We all got to eat. We already have things going on in our life that we are rubbing shoulders with thousands of people all the time that we have the opportunity to then share the gospel with them. 
And here's what I'm becoming more and more convinced of in my life. Not only do I need to be more active in doing this personally, but I would be no pastor. John would be no pastor worth following if we didn't invite you into the mission of God. Because when you get on board with the mission of Jesus, there is so much joy, so much fulfillment, so much satisfaction that it would be wrong of us to rob you of this privilege. Mission is just not for the pastors or the leadership. It's for all of us. So, final argument. None of us, none of us will meet Jesus one day and say, Jesus, I talked about you way too much. <laughs> right? Jesus, I was, I was way too bold in sharing you with others. It's just not going to happen. Right? So let's take steps. Let's maybe, maybe it's just a baby step for you to get your feet wet into the ocean of God's mission to have lunch with your coworker and just get to know him a little bit. And maybe the next lunch, you share more about your life and what's going on. Okay, so this is a process, but we need to be about actively sharing our faith. And, 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 and last encouragement, okay? That was the argument. Here's the encouragement. The encouragement is when we stay connected to Jesus, when we live under his authority and his reign in our life, when we stay connected to the, to the vine, this is how we produce fruit. This is how we have a productive life. So the, the, again, the, the encouragement here is not to, hey, go try hard, do this in your own strength. The encouragement is be so full of Christ because you're spending so much time with him and you're walking in his ways that this just naturally happens in our lives. We naturally want to obey him. We naturally want to share him with others. We naturally want to redeem the time, make the best use of our time. Number three, engage in business as those who will give an account. Okay, I've never been, worked for a company, at least that I've known of, that's been audited, okay? But when a company is audited, Every document, every line on them, every cent must be accounted for. And the reality for us is that one day we will give an account. If you will, one day we will be audited before God. I mean, God already has audited our life because God sees everything as it is. And so Romans 14, 12 says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And what we saw in the past is that two servants engaged in good business and they were richly rewarded, right? It says that the one who uh, gained 10 minus, he was set over uh, authoritatively over 10 cities. And the one who made five oversaw five cities. He says that they were entrusted with very little, but they were responsible and faithful with very little, so they will be given very much. And this is a disproportionate reward which further emphasizes what we've already been talking about, that God is a God of grace. This is not a leap for me to believe that God will reward us more than we deserve when we meet him one day. Why is that? Because he's already given us what we don't deserve when he gave us our salvation in Christ. We did nothing absolutely to earn that other than to say, hey, I need you and I want to receive the salvation. So he will reward us more richly than we deserve, but sadly, he will not reward everyone because not everyone desires to live their life for him. And this is what we see picking up in verse 20. 
It says that the third servant took a mina and he did with it what perhaps these kids downstairs in the subway station, you know, ages two to five, could have come up with this plan. He, they took the mina and they, he, he hid it in a handkerchief. So the, the money is just sitting there gathering dust and there's no return on the investment. And, and he tells us why he did that. It says that he was fearful of the, the nobleman who becomes the king. And he, and he brings these false accusations. He says, oh, I know you were a severe man. You were a hard man. You take what doesn't belong to you. And what I love is that Jesus says, okay, God will, I will condemn you with your own words. If you knew I was that severe, why don't you just put it in the bank and gain a little interest? So he says, look, your own logic and your own fears aren't even consistent. But but then he goes on to to, um, expose the misperception of the king's character, okay? And this is what people do with God. They, they don't have a clear vision of God, and so therefore they don't live their right, life rightly before God. So is God just or unjust? Is God loving or is God self-absorbed? Is God consistent or is God whimsical? And how we view God will necessarily determine how we live our lives on a daily basis. So this third servant didn't have a clear vision of God. He didn't live for God's glory because of this misperception. And so the the, the king says, hey, take the mina that belonged to him and give it to the one who has 10. And now there once again is this cry of injustice. Man, this is not fair. Why would he get more when this one now has nothing? And Jesus says then in verse 26, to the, to, to the one who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Once again, God's grace is scandalous and God's judgment is scandalous and people resist against both. Verse 27 tells us then that for those who reject God's plan, for those that reject Jesus and, and choose not to follow him with their lives to receive this gift that he so desperately wants to give us, says that they will ultimately be rejected one day when they stand before God. So, as we think about this parable of the ten minus, how many servants have we looked at here in this parable? How many? Three? No, there were, there were 10, right? 10 servants at the beginning. We just know about three of them. And I think what Luke is doing here in chapter 19 is what he did at the end of 15 when we never find out what happens to the older brother in the story of the prodigal son of the prodigal God. So I think what he's done is a literary device intentionally leaving us hanging on the other seven as if to say, hey, we all are servants of God who will ultimately give an account and the final chapters of the story have not been written yet. So again, let me ask you the question, how will you invest your life? What are you living for? Are you living for things that will, will, that will rot and rust and ultimately have no lasting eternal reward? Or are you living for the things of God which every single one of them are touched with immortality?
There's a little poem that I love that I try to live by as much as I possibly can every single day of my life. It says this, we have only one life, only one. Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. Jesus gives us the opportunity to spend our lives every single day for him and his purposes, his kingdom, and Jesus can save us from a wasted life. So let's pray and let's ask God to help us live our lives and spend our lives for him every single day. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would teach us the weight of this passage and that we would feel in our hearts the truth of it and and, and how that we need to be prepared to meet you one day. So God, we pray that you would show us ways maybe that we aren't currently investing our lives well for your kingdom. And Lord, that you would uh, free us up to obey your commands and to invest our lives wisely in what you have instructed us. So God, we're grateful that you give us the opportunity to know you, to be about your mission, to be uh, investing in your people as the church. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, free us up to live our lives for you in light of your return one day. God, make us an active church. Make us an active people who boast in you and who have much joy in following Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Mm -hmm.